Good morning, everyone. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to finish up our studies through Romans chapter 9. We're making our way week by week, verse by verse, through the book of Romans. Of course, there, there are interruptions here and there. Romans chapter 9 is uh, famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, for what it has to say about the absolute sovereignty of God over mankind, and in particular, over human salvation. And uh, there's some highlights um, in verses, uh, well, in verse 11 through 13, Paul writes there that uh, God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. And uh, in verse 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I, I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then regarding Pharaoh, Pharaoh being an example of this principle in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the big idea throughout the Bible, but particularly in Romans chapter 9, in the biblical scheme of salvation, God's grace is exalted and human pride is demolished. Our salvation exalts God, and we, those who are saved, those who receive the grace of God, we have no room for boasting. It's all about God, not about us. And when we opened Romans chapter 9, um, we noticed that the subject that leads into this discussion of the absolute sovereignty of God is the subject of the Jews. We saw in verse 6, for example, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then Paul goes on to develop that idea to show that um, this gospel that he has been preaching and writing about in the book of Romans that is nothing more or less than what the law and the prophets had uh, written about and spoken about as well in the Old Testament. He's explaining why the Jews who had received the Old Testament nevertheless had rejected the gospel by, uh, by and large. And it's that subject of the Jews now that Paul returns to we saw that as we closed with verse 24 last time. He says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the covenant community, the saved community, is the called community. And that called community is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. But now in verses 25 through 33, he's going to get a little bit more specific. 
he's going to um, try to answer the question from the scriptures as to what specifically happened in the case of the Jews. By what process did they go from, as Jesus described, salvation is from the Jews? How, how did they go from that, the supermajority, where uh, basically all saved people before the new covenant were from the Jews, with some exceptions, to being in the minority, to being a remnant of a remnant. What process explains that? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So the uh, overall question that we're considering that Paul seems to address is why did the Jews become the minority within the people of, of God? So the first thing we notice from the pen of Paul in verses 25 through 29 is, we're answering the question, why? And the first thing to take note of is that God foretold it through the Old Testament prophets. It was no surprise to God. This was not plan B to God. This is what the Old Testament prophets had prophesied about. And the reason that they prophesied about it is because this was God's eternal purpose. And to make that point, the Apostle Paul quotes from the two Old Testament prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. Hosea and Isaiah. So in verse 25, Paul says, And indeed, he says in Hosea, by the way, side note, Here's another example of this kind of language that the biblical writers use. So when the Old Testament prophet Hosea says something, it's the same thing as God saying it. Because God speaks through his prophets. God speaks through his word. So as indeed he says in Hosea, and then here's a quote from Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And, who, and uh, her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And then here's another quote from Hosea, uh, chapter 1 and verse 10. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what I want to do at this point, is have you turn back to Hosea. So Hosea in the Old Testament is between Daniel and Joel. So Hosea, I just want to refresh your memory about the story of the prophet Hosea. He has a very interesting story. In chapter 1 of Hosea and chapter 2, we read about what is so interesting about Hosea's story. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now commentators are divided on whether or not um, Hosea's wife, 
uh, her name is Gomer in verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. They're, they're, commentators are divided. Was, was Gomer already a prostitute when God commanded Hosea to go take her as his wife, or did she become a prostitute after Hosea had taken her to be his wife? We're not going to answer that question, but wow, what a command from God. And the reason why God commanded Hosea to do this is because Hosea in his marriage was to be a living, breathing picture, a parable basically, of the relationship between Israel and God. Israel was being a whore, to use biblical language, in its relationship with God. They were committing spiritual adultery by departing from the Lord. And Hosea was basically playing the part of God in this living, breathing parable. But then the parable goes on to include children born of this marriage. So in ver verses 4 through 5, there's this son uh, who is to be called Jezreel. But then the, um, there is a daughter born in verses 6 and 7 and another son in verse 8. And that, these are the children that Paul uh, draws from in Romans chapter 9. So in verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, Lo Ruhama, No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. It's been a pretty common practice in biblical cultures to name, to, uh, name children after biblical characters. We, we do it today. You don't hear a lot of girls named Lo Ruhama, no mercy. But that's what God told Hosea to name this daughter. And that name was symbolic for the situation in Israel. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And then in verse 8, there was another son who would be born. When she had weaned no mercy, when Gomer had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. Literally, lo ami. Not my people. Why? For you are not my people and I am not your God. And remember, it was the blessing of the, the old covenant. God had taken the people of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a special oath-bound promise relationship with him. And the whole point of his, the whole point of it was, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And here God is saying through this living, breathing parable, you are not my people and I am not your God. 
that is where things led to in this relationship between God and Israel. But then we know that the God of the Bible is a God of justice and righteousness and wrath and punishment and judgment, but he is the God of mercy and grace and forgiveness and redemption. And so as Hosea's prophecy unfolds, we learn that that state of Israel, no mercy, not my people, that was not going to stay that way either. And so in chapter 2, verses 14 through 23, God through Hosea tells us that uh, the Lord is going to have mercy on Israel again. Israel was going to be restored. And in verse 23, that's where we read this citation that Paul makes use of, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And in chapter 1 and verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So this relationship between Israel and God would be restored. So why does Paul cite these passages from Hosea in Romans chapter 9? What's his point in Romans 9 verses 25 and 26? Here's his point. If, <clears throat> if no mercy, that was the name of um, this daughter, Lo Ruhama, no mercy, if no mercy and not my people applied to Israel when they were separated from God because of their sins, how much more do no mercy and not my people apply to Gentiles, non-Jews like us, who never knew God's saving mercy and never were his people to begin with? Therefore, the source of Israel's restoration in Hosea chapter 2, when God promises to forgive and to restore and to redeem, the source of that restoration is the same source behind the calling of the Gentiles. And what is that? It's what Paul has been describing in Romans chapter 9, God's sovereign grace. Commentator William Hendrickson wrote this, what is stressed in these quotations is the sovereign and pitying grace of God shown to those who, whether Jews or Gentiles, lack the right to consider themselves God's people. And then the apostle Peter seems to draw from the same prophecy in Hosea. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, uh, Peter applies a bunch of um, Old Testament titles and terminology that are applied to Israel. And Peter applies those 
terms to believers, both Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament church. And then in verse 10, so 1 Peter 2.10, Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear the language from Hosea? Not my people, no mercy. That was us, brothers and sisters, before God saved us by his grace. We were not God's people. We did not have saving mercy from God. And what made the difference was God's call, God's sovereign grace. That's why we both Jews and Gentiles, as believers, we are now the community of God's people. It's God's grace. Then, in verses 27 and 20, uh, actually through 29, now Paul cites from the prophet Isaiah. In verses 27 and 28, The citation is from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. And this is what Paul writes. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. And that's a poetic way of describing a large number as numerous as the sand of the sea. But, Paul says, as he's quoting from Isaiah, only a remnant of them will be saved. Large number of physical descendants from Abraham. A large number of physical Israelites. But a relatively small number who are actually saved. Remember, not all of Israel belong to Israel. This is what Isaiah had prophesied about. Then in verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. This is part of God's judgment. Now in verse 29, the reference is to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul says, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring or a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis chapter 19 those two cities were wiped out, wiped off the face of the earth because of their sin by the judgment of God. God had the right to wipe the nation of Israel from off the face of the earth. And the reason why he didn't do that is because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of his grace. Because of God's grace, God preserved a remnant. 
that the Assyrians weren't able to destroy, that the Babylonians weren't able to destroy, that any of Israel's enemies were not able to destroy. God preserved a remnant. And this idea of a remnant is going to continue. We'll jump ahead to Romans chapter 11 and verse 5. We'll, we'll see this again in a few weeks. Paul um, is going to talk in more detail about the situation of the Jews, particularly uh, about their future. But in Romans 11 and verse 5, Paul wrote there, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant. And what's the cause of this remnant? Why aren't all of the Jews destroyed? Or in Paul's discussion, why aren't all of the Jews lost in unbelief? Why are there some Jews who believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus as their Messiah. He says, chosen by grace. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So, um, the Jews who would actually be saved were small in number compared to the total population of Israel as a whole. That's just Israel within Israel. But then under the new covenant, what's the promise to Abraham? You will be a blessing to all the families, all of the nations of the earth. And then looking forward to the consummation of the new covenant, the total population of God's people will be a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, including the Jews but they will be a remnant of a remnant. They'll be a minority. So again, trace the development of that. The saved community, practically all Jews, with some exceptions. Old covenant, now new covenant, there's a remnant of Jews. And this was God's eternal purpose as reflected in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so Paul wants to impress upon us that there's no surprises. There's nothing in terms of God's plan that has gone off the rails and now God needs to do something different. Nope, this is what God had always intended to do concerning the Jews. So God foretold this through the Old Testament prophets. Now we're going to see that Paul considers the thinking of the Jewish people themselves. We know it's all under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God, the eternal purposes of God. But in terms of how it actually works out, what's going on within the thinking of the Jewish people themselves? That's points two and three. So number two in your outline, they pursued their own righteousness by works. They pursued their own righteousness by works. Notice verses 30 
through 32a. What shall we say then, Paul says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. According to Paul, this is irony of ironies that Gentiles who had not received the law like the Jews had, who had not received the promises like the Jews had, who did not have the Old Testament scriptures like the Jews had, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they didn't care. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, by and large. Nevertheless, in Christ, through faith in the gospel, they had actually attained justifying righteousness. And then the Jews, by contrast, who had the law, didn't attain to that same justifying righteousness. Because believing Gentiles have faith in Jesus Christ. And unbelieving Jews, with all of their religion and all of their law and all of their scriptures, do not believe in Jesus Christ. They're not justified by faith. They're not saved. They're not declared righteous by God. Instead, they had reduced the system that God had revealed to them that was supposed to reveal his grace. It reveals his holiness as well, for sure, but it also reveals his grace. And they had reduced that system to a stairway leading to heaven, a system of attaining works righteousness. And I'll remind you from Romans chapter 3, if you'll look back there with me, that was not the right use of the law. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, for example, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 3.20, Paul does not say, this is a new way to look at the law. This is entirely brand new. Under the old covenant, the Jews earned their way to heaven through the law. But now, because of Jesus, this is how you look at the law. That's, that's not true. That's not what Paul said. What Paul writes about the law in Romans 3.20 has always been true about the law. The law is not able to justify. The law is not able to 
bring us to a place where we are in a right legal relationship with God. Because the law has no power to transform. It has no law, no power in and of itself to bring about the very righteousness that it demands. All it can do is show us our sin. Give us the knowledge of sin. Show us where we fall short of the glory of God. And it condemns. But it can never justify. But that's the way the Jews were using the law, including, by the way, Paul himself, before God saved him by his grace. Then, in verses 21 through 24, Paul goes on to say this, But now the righteousness of God, and what were the Jews interested in? The Jews, like Saul of Tarsus, they were interested in establishing their own righteousness. Human righteousness. The righteousness of works. But the righteousness of God is fundamentally different than that. It's outside of us. It's something that God grants by his grace. It's something that God gives as a gift through faith, not something that we attain. This righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. And remember, that is the distinction between the Gentiles in Romans chapter 9 and the Jews. The Gentiles who believe through faith. The Gentiles, or the Jews, no faith. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, um, the Jews had misused the law. The Jews were seeking to justify themselves based on their works. And this is why Jesus, by the way, directed the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector um, in Luke chapter 18 to those who trusted in themselves that they're righteous. To pursue righteousness by faith, to use Paul's terminology in Romans 9 and verse 32, to pursue it by faith, means to look outside of ourselves and any kind of obedience or any kind of good works that we would produce, to look outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ for the justifying righteousness of God. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every single religion, every single philosophy, every single worldview the world has ever known. Because every other system is about what sinners like us can do to attain salvation or nirvana or heaven or paradise or whatever. 
It's a bunch of steps. Christianity and Christianity alone says there's absolutely nothing you can do. You're, you're so sinful to, to the depth of your being, and God is so transcendently holy and righteous that there's nothing you can do. And so the good news is what God does. Amen. And he simply says, trust, believe, have faith, receive. That's the message of Christianity. And it's so profound because it means God gets all the glory. It means we have no room for boasting. And then ironically, it means that we owe him everything because he did everything. There's not even a trillionth of a penny that we can say, well, we did this, and so I can hold back. No, our salvation is all 100.00000% of grace, a sheer free grace. Therefore, we owe God everything which is what he demands of us. That we, it's our reasonable service to offer God our bodies as a living sacrifice. But that's what sets Christianity apart. And this is what made the Jews choke on it. Because righteous people don't want to be told that they're sinners who just like everybody else, they need a savior. That's why the Jews who lived in Jesus' time hated him and wanted him dead and worked to kill him, to murder him. And this is why self-righteous people today, both Jews and Gentiles, don't like this kind of message because they want to believe that they themselves are righteous. They're, they're a cut above the rest. Everybody else, oh, they're sinners and they, sure, Hitler deserves to go to hell. Saddam Hussein and whoever, but not me. Yes, you. Yes, me. Yes, the Apostle Paul. We all deserve the judgment of God, but God, by his grace, rescues some. That's the grace of God. So, why did the Jews become the minority within the people of God? Because they pursued their own righteousness by works. And then Paul goes on to say, verses 32b through 33, Jesus was a stumbling block to them. So let's read that. Second half of verse 32. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That verse, 33, uh, appears to be Paul combining Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16 and Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14. 
In Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16, we read of a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The New Testament says that's Jesus. And that's why we named our church Cornerstone Bible Church. Because the cornerstone of our faith is Jesus Christ himself. Not us, not any group of people, but Jesus and Jesus alone. So that's Isaiah 28 and verse 16. But then Isaiah 8 and verse 14 speaks of a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And what's so interesting about Paul combining those verses is that they both refer to Jesus because uh, in verse 33, he says, whoever believes in him, this cornerstone, who is at one and the same time a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, is a him. It's not a thing. It's not an it, it's a him, it's Jesus. But what's so ironic about this is that to believers, Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. But to unbelievers who don't have their eyes opened to see the truth of the gospel, that cornerstone instead is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The same him, Jesus. The same gospel, grace. To one group, salvation. To another group, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Paul says that's why the Jews are now, the, the Israelites, the minority within the people of God. And this isn't the only place where Paul makes this point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he makes this point emphatically. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the word or the message of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... And how are you being saved? On what basis are you being saved? For by grace you have been saved through faith. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice, it's the same message of the cross. To one group, folly, foolishness. To another group, the power of God. And skipping down to verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and that's what, the de that's what they demanded of Jesus when he was on the earth. And Jesus did a whole bunch of signs, so many miracles and wonders that the apostle John said all of the books of the world were not big enough to contain all of them. But still, the Jews in Jesus' time said, do a sign, perform a sign, a miracle. Because everything that you've done and said is not enough for us. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. He's our cornerstone. A stumbling block to Jews. 
and folly to Gentiles. And here's this distinction again. Verse 24, but to those who are called, remember we saw that in Romans? In Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And in Romans chapter 9 and verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24, but to those who are called. This is what God does. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The grace of God is what makes the difference. And it's the grace of God that has created this community of believers from both Jews and Gentiles, but it was the same grace of God that was a stumbling block to the Jews. And you know what? A lot has changed in 2,000 years. Our technology has changed. Our theory of government has changed. Our customs and rituals have changed a lot. But there's one thing that has not changed. The gospel and human nature. It is still the same truth that God is calling sinners to himself by his powerful sovereign grace through the preaching of the gospel. And it's not changed that people still don't understand how desperately they need a savior. They're still trying to justify themselves before God in their conscience. And they still think the message of the cross is foolishness. And they still react when you tell them, well, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know that the Bible says there's salvation nowhere else, for there's no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know that there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and people react to that by saying, that's foolish. That doesn't make sense. That's not fair. And of course, the reason that it is true and it is fair is because God doesn't owe salvation to anyone but praise him and his grace that he saves some and those whom he saves, he saves on the basis of what Jesus Christ, his son, did on the cross. He died in our place and then he was raised from the dead for our justification. But, but all of our eggs have to be in that basket, the basket of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues to be a stumbling block to people until God opens their eyes. And so my question for you is, how about you? How about you? Have you come to the place where in your heart of hearts, with God as your witness, 
Have you come to the place where you just confess to God your utter and total depravity and sinfulness? Have you come to the place where you just throw yourselves at the feet of God's mercy? Can you say and have you said in your heart, not these words that I'm about to say, but, but the spirit of them, the, the lyrics from Augustus Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages. Is this your heart? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. May today, today, be the day of your salvation. If you're yet an unbeliever, may you leave this place in a different spiritual state than you came in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing message, the amazing gospel of your amazing grace. We thank you for the wisdom, your wisdom, that was so clearly revealed in the law and the prophets and was so clearly and vividly put on display and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, your son. And now, Lord, we can read and hear with our own eyes and ears in the pages of your word, your scriptures. We pray that today your word would not return to you void, but that it would accomplish every purpose for which you sent it, and that sinners would be saved, and that sinners would be made to appreciate your grace more and more, and to live in a way that magnifies your grace. For we pray in Jesus' worthy name, amen.